0: Ketanji Brown-Jackson wins her confirmation vote and joins the Supreme Court. The legacy media demonstrate once again why they can't be trusted to cover basic news. And Jen Psaki says the DOJ will come after states that restrict hormone blockers and genital surgeries for minors. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. I talk about them every single show. Why haven't you gotten a VPN yet? Get ExpressVPN right now at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Speaking of which, You need one. You need a VPN. And the reason you need a VPN, so many people want your internet data. That includes hackers. It includes the government. It also includes big tech grab all of that data, and then they monetize all of that data, and then they use all of that data against you. So this is why you should grab ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN, is an app that prevents your phone carrier from being able to see the sites you visit and sell it off to third parties. All it takes is one tap of a button. All your network data gets encrypted and rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers for ultimate privacy. Not only does ExpressVPN shield your web browsing, ExpressVPN protects all of your network data so you can stay private even when you are using your favorite apps. Whether you're an iPhone, Android, even a tablet user, ExpressVPN works on all your devices. The best part, one subscription can be used on up to five devices at the same time. I've got my whole family using ExpressVPN as well. When your phone carrier tracks you, it's a gross invasion of privacy. You can either let them cash in or you can use expressvpn.com Ben to protect yourself. Take back your online privacy today. That's expressvpn.com Ben. Again, expressvpn.com Ben. Well, it is so historic. It's the most historic, historic moment in all of history. Ketanji Brown Jackson has been confirmed as the first black woman on the Supreme Court, despite the fact that we can't define the word woman anymore. So she's the first black meh, on the Supreme Court, which wouldn't make her the first black meh, on the Supreme Court because we've had Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Thomas. So actually, I, again, if you can't define woman, then the historic nature of the selection becomes a little bit more dicey. But Ketanji Brown Jackson is, in fact, the first black woman to join the Supreme Court. And the media are just beside themselves with joy over it. Now, at no point have they asked whether she will actually be a good justice. At no point have they really asked whether her judicial philosophy merits her being on the highest court in the land. The truth is that left-wing judicial philosophy really does not merit anyone being on the highest court in the land because it runs directly counter to the role of the judiciary. The role of the judiciary, according to Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, is to adjudicate the law. It is not to make up the law. It is not to substitute its own politics in place of the law. It is not to put its policy preferences into the law. The role of the judiciary is separate from the role of the legislature. The left does not believe this. The left believes that the judiciary is basically a bunch of very wise leftists who get to do whatever they want to the law and torture the Constitution until it spits out, until it finally rats out all, all of their policy preferences. You just torture it hard enough. You just throw it on that table. And you put the torture machine to a thousand, like the man in black and Princess Bride. Eventually, out will come screaming Roe versus Wade. This is the idea of the Supreme Court according to the left. Ketanji Brown-Jackson is an advocate of that particular belief system. She sort of pays homage to textualism or originalism. She suggests the original meaning of the Constitution matters to her. I've seen no evidence that this is in fact the case. Nonetheless, the Senate voted 53-47 to confirm Ketanji Brown-Jackson as the 116th Supreme Court justice on Thursday, according to the Wall Street Journal, making history in diversifying the bench while leaving unchanged the conservative tilt of a court tackling such hot button issues as abortion rights and race in college admissions. Now, again, She's not making any sort of history in diversifying the bench in terms of ideology. There's already several justices on the Supreme Court and the one she's replacing, Justice Breyer, who are very far to the left. When they say making history diversifying the bench, they mean that she has particular intersectional qualities that supposedly contribute to the judiciar- the, the, the nature of the judiciary. Again, I, I'm hard pressed to see why that should be the case. Judge Jackson, 51 years old, will be the first black woman to join the Supreme Court Fulfilling a pledge made by President Biden at a pivotal moment in the 2020 Democratic presidential race, a decision that allies credited with reviving his campaign. Okay, now this is just a wild overstatement. (laughs) The idea that because he said that he'd pick a black woman for the Supreme Court, this is what got him the nomination. No, what got him the nomination is that Jim Clyburn looked at Bernie Sanders and went, that guy? That old kooky socialist nutbag? And then he decided to endorse Biden. And if Biden had not picked a black woman for the Supreme Court or said that he was going to, that would have had no impact on Jim Clyburn's pick. Nonetheless, according to The Wall Street Journal, the thin margin of Thursday's vote and some contentious exchanges during Judge Jackson's hearing underlined how partisan the confirmation process has become. I'm just amused by the media and their take on the Ketanji Brown-Jackson hearings. These hearings were pretty smooth. She was asked some pretty obvious questions about her sentencing practices in the past. She was asked some questions about the fact that she sits on the board of a school that has a bunch of radical books that are assigned or in the library. None of this is out of bounds. The, the the fact that the media have decided that this particular hearing demonstrates how polarized we are after we had the hearings for Judge Brett Kavanaugh, in which he was accused of gang rape by the Democrats and asked about boofing in his high school yearbook. Like this is where you're drawing the line in terms of offensive judicial hearings, guys. Yeah, I, I don't buy it. But again, this is how the media play it. If Republicans object to a Democratic judicial nominee, it's because they're divisive. If Democrats object to a Republican judicial nominee, this is because they're standing up For the Constitution and against sexism and all 50 senators, according to The Wall Street Journal, who caucused with Democrats voted to confirm Judge Jackson. So did several Republicans, including Mitt Romney of Utah, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. They said, while they don't expect to agree with all of Judge Jackson's decisions, they believe she had the qualifications and temperament for the job. Again, qualifications and temperament are such kind of silly terms for, for what it means to be a judge. Qualifications should be can you adjudicate a case fairly and can you read a text? People on the left cannot do either when it comes to judicial confirmations. They pick people who refuse to read text and who cannot do their job fairly because they wish to, again, impose their ideology on everyone. And when it comes to temperament, judicial temperament typically means that you remove yourself from the conflict to the extent their own policy preferences don't play a role. If you want to go back to judicial temperament all the way back to the Bible, it talks specifically about picking people of good character. Who are not going to be bribed by the rich or going to be cudgeled emotionally by the poor. The idea is that you're supposed to judge fairly in each case without reference to who the people are before you. This is something that people on the left really don't agree with when it comes to how the judges should act. They believe that the judges should basically take the most sympathetic case for their side and then adjudicate along those bases. Republicans who opposed her confirmation focused on her judicial philosophy and sentencing record. So I, I love this. I love, so people, who voted in favor of her, focused on qualifications and temperament, both of which are fungible terms. And Republicans instead focused on her judicial philosophy and sentencing record. You mean like what she thinks and what she has ruled in the past. And this is now considered very, very bad. Senator Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, he says that Joe Biden has let the radicals run the show. And this is how you end up with Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, who has ruled like a leftist because she is a leftist. President Biden was elected on the promise that he would govern as a moderate and unite the country. He insisted the radical left would not be calling the shots on his watch. But when it came to one of the most consequential decisions a president can make, a lifetime appointment to our highest court, the Biden administration let the radicals run the show. Well, that obviously is true. But the Biden administration has let the radicals run the show all the way along. And this does raise the real question as to why people like Mitt Romney Susan Collins, I understand. She's from a swing state, right? Susan Collins is from Maine, so you understand it. Lisa Murkowski has been in the Senate for quite a while, and her position in the Senate has always been the same. She was sort of a John McCain swing vote. Mitt Romney is from the reddest state in America. He ran for president on the 2012 Republican ticket. I see no excuse for Mitt Romney not only voting for this judicial nomination. I see no excuse for him giving it a standing ovation. I'm I'm getting extraordinarily tired of Republicans and conservatives doing this routine where every time somebody wins a high position is either elected to it like Barack Obama or is selected to it like Ketanji Brown Jackson then confirmed. And this person happens to embody a philosophy that is antithetical to everything conservatives believe. They still stand up and they applaud the historic nature Oh, the historic nature. Who cares? I mean, truly, who cares if we are supposed to be aiming for a society in which we actually judge people? Based on the quality of their character, and based on their politics and philosophy—you know, the things that actually matter in politics and philosophy—then I don't understand why there are so many Republicans who feel the necessity to sort of virtue signal that. Oh my gosh, we have a black woman on the Supreme Court. Oh, my. we have a black female Vice President. We've had a black female Secretary of State. We've had a black president. Like, can 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 we get over this at a certain point? Like, when are we just say? At what point can we finally just say, let's look at the person as opposed to the intersectional characteristics? And if you're a Republican doing this, you're, you're just as bad as Democrats who do it. Here's Kamala Harris announcing the vote, and suddenly you have Mitt Romney on his feet cheering.
1: On this vote, the A's are 53, the Nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed.
0: Yay! And there's Mitt Romney standing and cheering because, of course, Mitt Romney's one of the good guys. By, by one of the good guys, I mean that the media like Mitt Romney after hating the living bleep out of him when he was running in 2012. Uh, I have very little taste for people who get slapped around by the media and their first response is to immediately kowtow to everything that the media wants. It's really kind of, really kind of yucky. You wonder how you got Trump in 2016, guys? Mitt Romney in 2012 had something to do with that. Meanwhile, you can see in that video, a bunch of the Republicans did not stand in cheer because why would they stand and cheer? Did a bunch of Democrats stand and cheer when Judge Kavanaugh was confirmed? Did a bunch of Democrats stand and cheer when Justice Thomas was confirmed, by the way? No, of course not. A Gloria Borger over at CNN, she's very upset that many Republicans did not stand in cheer now that another radical has joined the Supreme Court. Republicans, by and large, could not leave that chamber quickly enough. And mm-hmm. I think it was rude. And I think it was rude that uh, Rand Paul was late, maybe at a late flight. So we'll give him that excuse. But I mean, the fact and Ali Zaslav and our Hill team is reporting that Lindsey Graham uh, wasn't wearing the required tie. So we had to vote from uh, from outside the the chamber in the cloakroom. Okay, Um, but this is a moment in history and you
1: want to show up.
0: Okay, this is so boring. Gloria Borger over at CNN. I love all these people who, again, spent weeks calling Brett Kavanaugh a possible gang rapist, like, well, Lindsey Graham didn't wear his high. And that's really offensive that Lindsey Graham did. I'm sorry. Your new standard is that whenever a Democrat wants a thing and Republicans don't give it to them and not only don't give it to them, don't cheer openly that this means that they're really, really bad. The, The media are, they're hot garbage. They really, really are. John Harwood, He tweeted out yesterday, he's a White House correspondent for CNN. He tweeted out, when Thurgood Marshall was confirmed in 1967 to become the first black man on the Supreme Court, 16 of the 22 senators from the 11 states of the old Confederacy voted no or didn't vote. When Ketanji Brown Jackson was confirmed today to become the first black woman, 18 of 22 voted no. Oh yes, it it turns out he is suggesting that just as a bunch of racists did not vote for Thurgood Marshall in 1967 to become the first black man on the Supreme Court, fast forward 50 years, almost 60 years. And, um, and for the same reason, a bunch of Republican evil senators from the South didn't vote for Ketanji Brown. Really, how did the vote go on uh, Clarence Thomas, by the way? You'll recall that there were many, many Democrats who did not vote for Clarence Thomas. He was confirmed 52 to 48. Okay, 11 Democrats voted in favor of Clarence Thomas. 46 Democrats voted against Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas was and remains a black person. But according to the media, it doesn't matter how badly Republicans are treated. Republicans can never be intersectional. They're always bad. They deserve exactly whatever it is that they get. So the media are constantly getting things wrong, like John Harwood. This is also true when it comes to crypto. If you watch the media coverage, they would be telling you, no, crypto, it's, it's it's unsafe. You should be looking at the U.S. dollar. Or maybe you shouldn't listen to the same people who think Joe Biden is really good at his job. And you might want to look into an auto crypto IRA. With an auto crypto IRA, you can trade crypto like Bitcoin and you can avoid or defer the taxes. You can get into investing in crypto and do it in a tax advantage retirement account. Alto's Crypto IRA, it's the easy way to get crypto into an IRA. You can trade all you want without the tax headache. Create an account in just a few minutes. Invest with as little as 10 bucks. They've got no setup charges, no account fees. Secure trading 24-7 through Alto's integration with Coinbase. They've got 150 plus coins available, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Cardano. And they've got industry-leading security, the advanced encryption standard for wallets and private keys as well. Listen, I am a crypto owner. I think you should get into crypto at least a little bit as well, given the fact that the economy is really volatile right now. Open an Alto Crypto IRA account with as little as 10 bucks. Just go to altoira.com slash Ben. That is A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com slash Ben. Start investing in cryptocurrency today. Go to altoira.com slash Ben. The The attempt by members of the media to, uh, to treat the Katanji Brown Jackson nomination, which again was a pretty straightforward nomination, Democrats voted for her. Most Republicans did not. This is not a great shock because, again, the judiciary has been politicized since well before Roe versus Wade. To treat this as though Ketanji Brown Jackson was somehow cudgelled about, clubbed about the ears during this confirmation hearing is absurd. It's ridiculous. This was, this was an incredibly cordial confirmation hearing by any standard of the day. And yet you have The Washington Post trotting out Anita Hill, who, in my opinion, falsely accused. Justice Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. They're now trotting her after trying to make Anita Hill a thing again. they tried to make it. They made like a full HBO documentary about Anita Hill. Based on what exactly? Her account was unverified. It didn't make any sense. Nonetheless, the media tried to turn her into a hero 20 years late. And now they've got her in the Washington Post writing about how terrible it was for Judge Jackson. The title of the piece, quote, The Senate Judiciary Committee mistreated Judge Jackson. I should know the shameful spectacle of the Senate Judiciary Committee during the confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown Jackson makes clear the confirmation process is broken. The panel must act to restore people's faith in it. Well, you know who broke the confirmation process? You were part of that being trotted out by the Democrats in order to attempt to destroy the life, character and career of an excellent Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. But says Anita Hill, this is not simply about Jackson's reputation, which was repeatedly smeared by Republican senators peddling false narratives about her supposed coddling of child pornographers and terrorists. It is about the legacy and future of the Senate and the Supreme Court itself. I know something about being mistreated by the Senate Judiciary Committee. During the confirmation hearing for Justice Clarence Thomas in 91, I was subjected to attacks on my intelligence, truthfulness, blah, 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 blah. In some ways, the committee has changed for the better since then, says Anita Hill. There are now four women on the panel and one black member still When I heard predictions before the hearing that Republicans would offer little resistance to Jackson's confirmation, I knew from painful experience that assessment was overly optimistic. Even so, I was shocked, shocked by the interrogation of Jackson. Interrogation. It was a brutal, vicious interrogation. It was like when Darth Vader interrogated Han Solo in Empire Strikes Back. Didn't even ask him any questions. She was just, she was shocked by it. She says, that it was obvious that no matter how composed, respectful, or brilliant her responses, her critics' only goal was to discredit her. I mean, first of all, well, literally, you were in judicial nomination hearings, Anita Hill. The only reason you're a famous person is because you were brought in to discredit Clarence Thomas. That is the only reason at all. You had nothing to do with how he would rule on cases. You didn't really have anything relevant to say about his career. All you were there to do was discredit Justice Thomas, and now you're being trotted out as an example of a mistreated black woman, just like, what, Ketanji Brown Jackson, who, again, was treated pretty cordially, and that's just one of many pieces in the New York Times today, all about how cruel Republicans were for asking questions of just now Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. It's just just terrible. So this brings us to a broader point here, and that is that the media continue to just be absolute garbage. And the fact that they are absolute garbage is not lost, I think, on a broad majority of Americans. More and more, the media have discredited themselves, which is a good thing, because frankly, they deserve to be seen with disfavor by the American public. They cover up stories. They miscover stories. They miss headline stories. And they do it on a regular basis. It's shown everything from domestic to foreign policy. It's incredible how often the media just blow it and then pretend that they're doing it right. Now, l- let me just give you a, a headline okay, from BBC or The Guardian about a terror attack in Tel Aviv last night. So last night in Tel Aviv, in Israel, there's a terror attack in which a Palestinian, walked into a bar and just shot dead two random Israeli men who were at a bar. Just killed them outright. And then Israeli police went on the lookout for this guy. They finally found him. He proceeded to fire a bunch of rounds at Israeli police officers. And in response, they killed him. Here are the headlines from your media. Quote, this is Reuters. Israeli forces shoot dead Palestinian after Tel Aviv bar attack. I feel like you're missing some crucial context there, like the fact that this is the guy who perpetrated the attack and fired on police. They didn't just go and shoot a random Palestinian. Here's the Guardian. Israeli forces kill a Palestinian after Tel Aviv shooting leaves two dead. Okay, just to make clear, this is a Palestinian terrorist who murdered two Israelis in cold blood, and the Israelis then killed him. But it's moral equivalent. From BBC News, Israel, Palestinian gunmen killed after deadly attack at Tel Aviv Bar. What was the deadly attack? What was the deadly attack? It's just pretty incredible. Okay, but this is how the media treat things. Okay, so there was, there was this disinformation conference over at the University of Chicago yesterday. And it went very, very poorly for members of the media because there were two college freshmen from a conservative publication called the Chicago Thinker. And they proceeded to ask these very famous members of the media pretty basic questions about why the media are so bad at their job. And these members of the media had, no, had really no answers at all. So as you'll see, there were a couple of different college freshmen who got up and basically just humiliated a variety of journalists on the stage. So Ann Applebaum, who's actually written some really good stuff about the Stalin era. She wrote a great book called Gulag about the Gulag system in Russia, but now has become sort of a wild leftist who spends all of her time bitching and moaning about Trump and the Republicans. She's sitting with David Axelrod. Again, bias in the media gang. Here's David Axelrod, the former chief of staff to Barack Obama, talking about disinformation in the media and uh, a college student asks her a pretty simple question about Hunter Biden's laptop and she's got nothing.
1: Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. I'm Daniel Schmidt. I'm a freshman at the university of Chicago. My question is for Ms. Applebaum. Um, So in 2020, you wrote, those who live outside the Fox News bubble do not, of course, need to learn any of the stuff about Hunter Biden, referring to his laptop, of course. Uh, A poll later after that found that if voters knew about the content of the laptop, 16% of Joe Biden voters would have acted differently. Now, of course, we know a few weeks ago, the New York Times confirmed that the content is real. Do you think the media acted inappropriately when they instantly dismissed uh, Hunter Biden's laptop as Russian disinformation? And what can we learn from that in ensuring that what we label as disinformation is truly disinformation and not reality?
0: I mean, my, my problem with Hunter Biden's laptop is I think totally irrelevant. I mean, it's not whether it's disinformation or, I mean, I didn't think the, hunter biden's um business relationships have anything to do with who should be president of the united states so i, I didn't find i don't find it to be interesting i mean that that would be my problem with the that as a as a major news story okay so it's not a major news story if Ann apple finds it not to be interesting business relationships with foreign countries for a bag man for the biden family completely uninteresting so what does it matter So our media, when confronted, they really have no answers as to why they are bad at their job. But here is the thing. If you call your credit card company and you ask them why they are bad at their job, they also will have no answers. You're probably paying too much on your credit card right now. Once you get into credit card debt, it is very, very difficult to get out. And this is what the credit card companies rely upon. Instead, why not try consolidating your credit card debt with Lightstream? Their credit card consolidation loan can help you pay off those credit cards fast and keep more money in your pocket in the process. Lightstream makes the process really simple. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. A lot of people don't realize this, but credit cards can have awfully high interest rates. Even if you got excellent credit, your APR could be 20%, 30%, even higher than that. Stop overpaying. Take control of your finances with Lightstream. Lightstream believes people with great credit deserve a great rate, and that is just what they give you. Loans range from five grand to a hundred grand, and you can roll your cards into one low payment at a fixed rate as low as 5.73% APR with auto pay and excellent credit, which is way lower than most credit cards. Just go to lightstream.com slash Shapiro. Apply now to get a special interest rate discount and save even more. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Shapiro. Subject to credit approval, rates range from 5.73% APR to 19.99% APR, including 0.50% auto pay discount. Lowest rate requires excellent credit terms and conditions. Apply, officer, subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Shapiro for more information. And this is not the only person who just got finished on the stage. There's another college kid. Again, these are very easy questions to answer if you are an honest person. But unfortunately, our media are just utterly dishonest. So, a college kid asked Brian Stelter a basic question. You guys spend all day covering Fox News and complaining about Fox News and the evils of right wing media and misinformation, and uh, then you get a bunch of stories wrong. So, please explain yourself, Brian Stelter.
1: Uh, hi, thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Christopher Phillips. I'm a first year at the college. Uh, my questions for Mr. Stelter. Uh, you've all spoken extensively about fox news being a purveyor of uh, disinformation Uh, but cnn is right up there with them they pushed the russian collusion hoax they pushed the jesse smollett hoax they smeared justice kavanaugh as a rapist and they also smeared nick salmon as a white supremacist and yes they dismissed the hunter biden laptop affair as pure russian disinformation uh, with mainstream corporate journalists becoming little more than uh, apologists and cheerleaders for the regime, is it time to finally declare that the, uh, the canon of journalistic ethics is dead or no longer operative? Uh, all the mistakes of the mainstream media, and CNN in particular, seem to magically all go in one direction. Are we expected to believe that this is all just some sort of random coincidence, or is there something else behind it? Too bad, it's time for lunch. (laughs) Uh, You have 30 seconds. No, I mean, there is a a clock that says 30 seconds. But but I I think my honest answer to you, and I'll come over and talk in more detail after this, is that I think you're describing a different channel than the one that I watch. Uh, But I understand that that is a popular right-wing narrative about CNN. I think it's important when we talk about shared reality and democracy, all these networks, all these news outlets have to defend democracy. And when they screw up, admit it. Uh, But... When Benjamin Hall, the Fox correspondent, was wounded in Ukraine, the news crews at CNN and the New York Times stopped what they were doing, and they tried to help. They tried to help him get out of the country. They tried to find the dead crew members. That's what news outlets do. That's how they actually do work together to your question. Okay, about- you can
0: stop right there. I, I just have a question. What in the hell does that have to do with CNN completely blowing a series of stories in dramatic fashion over the course of years, all directed in one direction? That someone was wounded, and so we had people there who helped. What does that have to do with anything? I mean, I assume so with the Red Cross, but the Red Cross is not a journalistic outlet that purports to be objective in its news coverage. The media continue to be the great story of American politics because it is through the prism of the media that most people find out the information they're supposed to know. But the media spend all day, every day, attempting to obfuscate on behalf of left-wing viewpoints. Actually, a good example of this today is the New York Times has now updated its Twitter policy. They're now telling its journalists not to use Twitter as much. In a memo to employees on Thursday shared with The Hill, Dean Baquette, the newspaper's top editor, announced what he called a reset in our approach, handing down new guidance, dictating that maintaining a presence on Twitter and social media is now purely optional for Times journalists. He said that people getting feedback online, it can be harmful to Times journalism when our feeds become echo chambers. But here's the thing. I like these journalists being online because now we know exactly what they think, because the simple fact is what they think is pretty much always what the Democratic Party thinks. Remember, Ann Applebaum five seconds ago here, journalist Ann Applebaum, democracy and misinformation. She said that Hunter Biden was not relevant. The entire media said in October of 2020 that Hunter Biden was not relevant. Well, today, a couple years later, CBS News is now reporting, quote, while conservative heat has for three years focused on the past business activities of President Biden's son, Hunter, a key Senate Republican told CBS News this week that newly obtained banking records raise similar concerns about first brother James Biden, Senator Chuck Grassley, ranking Republican on the Judiciary Committee, told CBS News senior investigative correspondent Catherine Herridge, quote, We have people with the Biden name dealing with the Chinese business people that have a relationship with the Communist Party. I think James Biden was very much a part of this. Bank records released by Republican senators this week indicate James Biden's company, the Lion Hall Group, received payments from a Chinese finance consulting group in 2018 before his brother Joe announced he was running for president. Grassley says that that same year, James Biden and the president's son, Hunter, received monthly retainers totaling $165,000 for Hunter and $65,000 to James. Grassley said his team obtained the records directly from the bank where the consulting group did business. He spent three years investigating and described James and Hunter Biden's business dealings as, quote unquote, very concerning. It is also unclear exactly where all of Joe Biden's money came from. Good piece in The Federalist by Bob Anderson today titled, Joe Biden released a tax his, his Joe Biden's released tax returns that don't explain millions in income. Where did it come from? In the week prior to the presidential election, I wrote a piece that asked the question: Where is Hunter Biden's money? It was an important question then, even more so now. Recall that despite then presidential candidate Biden having ba- bragged that he had released his tax returns with what his team called a historic level of transparency, the truth is he only released his individual returns. Those returns provided no detail regarding the source of most of his, his income dollars that flowed to him and his wife. By way of S-Corps, they set up shortly after his departure from the office of the VP. Those entities, Celtic Capricor, his, and Giacoppa Corps, hers, contained more than $13 million of the $17 million the couple had reported in income after Biden left office, most of it in his first year. The same media that ignored Hunter's laptop has shown a complete incuriosity about these entities, accepting the premise that Joe and Jill raked in $13 bucks from their book deal to generate their huge increase in income. We simply don't know if that's true. What we do know is that their book sales were absolutely dismal. Perhaps sensing smoke starting to build just before the election, USA Today published a fact check piece that attempted to support the Bidens, earned $15.6 million from speaking fees and book deals in the years 2017 through 2019. And more than 10 million of that total income was profits from Biden's memoir, Promise Me Dad, and 3 million in profits from Jill Biden's book. Follow the source link to that $10 million number though, and you'll end up at Joe Biden's campaign website with financial disclosure links only to their individual returns, no S-corp tax returns. So in reality, readers were left with a smoke screen. And again, it's not as though these books were like enormous bestsellers. We're supposed to believe that Jill grossed $3 million royalties plus 700 grand from speaking fees for a book that sold 7,000 copies in its first week. And that from that book deal, she netted more than a million dollars in the two years prior to its release, but only $175,000 in the year it was published. It's possible that that was an advance. How does a publisher justify a $3 million advance on a book that sells 7,000 copies? We are also told that Joe netted $12.2 million after expenses in the same deal for a book that sold 300,000 copies. Excluding the $4.2 million earned from touring and Speaking that yields $8 million of income, we are to assume came from book royalties. Okay, let me just make clear that there is no author on planet Earth who has ever made $8 million from a book that sells 300,000 copies. I know because I have books that have sold half a million copies. I did not make $8 million (laughs) from the right side of history. I can tell you that right now. So where is the rest of that money coming from? We just don't know. We have no clue. But it took two years for the media to report on any of this, and they're still not really reporting on the dramatic lack of information about Joe's income. And again, this is true in every arena of American life. The media just use euphemisms or they lie in order to achieve a political purpose. This is what they do. This is particularly true when it comes to social issues. Euphemisms are the name of the game. As we'll see, that's true, particularly when it comes to LGBTQ plus issues. But it also happens to be true of abortion. And for years and years and years, the left has promoted the idea that abortion is a sort of safe, sterile procedure in which there is no victim, that it is the death of a cluster of meaningless cells. That is not how abortion actually works. A true journalist might actually go to an abortion clinic and report on what they saw. But the mainstream media won't do that. We do have one reporter, Mary Margaret Olihan, who actually went to an abortion clinic And talked with people at this abortion clinic. I'm gonna bring you that story in just one moment. First, if there's one question I never thought would be necessary to ask the general public, it is what is a woman? But unfortunately, we now have to ask that question. And our new Supreme Court Justice does not know the answer to that question. And the Biden administration does not know the answer to that question. Well, I think a lot of people are asking that question these days. Matt Walsh is now trying to find an answer. He's made an entire film, he's written an entire book trying to find an answer from the left. Both are called What is a woman? The book is now available for pre-order at whatisawoman.com and also on Amazon, or hit number one on the bestseller charts in the women's studies category, making Matt not only an LGBTQ plus bestselling author, but also a women's study author. Well, that was, of course, it was before it was removed from the list. I think it's been put back up now on the list. So help Matt continue to top the women's studies list and find the answer to this elusive question. Pre-order his book, What Is A Woman?, at whatisawoman.com or on Amazon. You're listening to the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. So there's this piece over at Daily Wire. And again, it is vital reading because it's doing the sort of journalism that frankly, you're not gonna get from the legacy media, which is simply going to hide the facts. So there's been this story that has gotten almost no national media coverage in which they're pro-life activists and they got a hold of the fetal remains from this abortion clinic in Washington, D.C. And it is pretty obvious from the fetal remains of the abortion clinic that these kids were killed illegally, that these were partial birth abortions in violation of federal law. Even if they weren't, the the pictures themselves are so gruesome and horrifying as to shock the conscience. The left must keep you at all costs from actually seeing the consequences of their policy preferences. Well, one of our reporters, Mary Margaret Olahan, who does a wonderful job covering this sort of stuff, she actually went to this abortion clinic to ask the abortionists about these, fetus, these fetuses and, and the fetal remains. And here's what she writes. And it's, it's a shocking story over at Daily Wire today that, that really you should, you should read and distribute. On Thursday, April 7th, I drove downtown in the rain to an abortion clinic run by Dr. Cesare Santangelo, an abortionist accused of using gruesome techniques to end the lives of unborn babies. I can't stop thinking about what I saw. I've been asking officials for answers and explanations all week. The DC Medical Examiner, Mayor B- Muriel Bowser, the Metropolitan Police Department, Washington Surgical Clinic, Curtis May, Curtis Bay Medical Waste Facility, Planned Parenthood, Baltimore City Center, the Department of Health and Human Services. But no one will address why a box allegedly containing 110 pulverized first trimester babies and five preemie sized babies was about to be sent from Washington Surgical Clinic to Curtis Bay Medical Waste Facility, a facility that continues to insist to me, ignoring photographs of its labeling on the box of aborted babies, that it does not burn fetal remains. Officials have said autopsies will not be re- performed. Authorities will not address whether the five babies were alive when they were killed. The only interest D.C. officials have seemingly shown in this matter is whether members of the pro-life group, the progressive anti-abortion uprising, committed a crime when they took a box of aborted fetal remains from a dolly outside Washington surgery clinic. PAAU told me they asked a driver of a Curtis Bay medical waste truck if they could take the box to give the babies a proper funeral and that he agreed, noting he had already scanned the box into the system and its disappearance would likely go unnoticed. Live action photographed these five babies. Pro-life medical professionals and experts who examined the photographs estimated they were in the end of the second trimester or in the third trimester when they were aborted. This week, GOP lawmakers called on Mayor Muriel Bowser and the DOJ to investigate the abortions of the five babies and to preserve all of the children's remains as evidence and conduct autopsies. And yet, D.C. officials remain silent. And here's what Mary Margaret Olahan did. She went to the abortion clinic. Frustrated with the lack of responses, she wrote, I drove to abortionist Dr. Cesare Santangelo's million dollar home. When no one answered the door, I drove to his abortion clinic located on the fourth floor of a foggy bottom office building near George Washington University. He's practiced in Washington surgery clinic for decades. Despite multiple complaints of medical malpractice and allegations, he uses gruesome abortion techniques and allows babies to die after surviving abortions. One lawsuit accused him of bungling the removal of a baby so badly that fetal debris ended up in the lungs of the mother who died. I noticed a sign on the door of the clinic warning visitors they would be turned away without a mask. Hesitant to go in without one, I paused for a moment to search for my purse, and at that moment, a young woman emerged from the clinic, followed by a man who I believed to be her boyfriend. She looked stressed, but I was focused on talking to Santangelo, so I went inside and asked the girl behind the desk for a mask. She was friendly, asking as she handed me a mask, do you have an appointment? No, I told her. I recognized her voice from many times I'd called the clinic. I'm looking for Dr. Santangelo. I think you and I chatted on the phone earlier. I'm a reporter with The Daily Wire. I have some questions for him. I'd love to talk to you too. Her face immediately changed. "He's not here right now, she said. I don't think that's true, I told her, glancing around the waiting room full of patients. But the clinic worker insisted she could tell me nothing and that all press inquiries must go through the National Abortion Federation, which handles the abortion clinics, publicity and scrutiny. They've also rejected all requests for comment. A second woman who worked at the clinic came out of her office and firmly told me they would not give me any answers. They both seemed worried about what I would say in front of the patients. I reminded the clinic workers, the Metropolitan Police Department, Republican senators and the FBI are all involved in the happenings of the last few weeks. If the clinic in Santagelo had done nothing wrong, Sharing their perspective with the media could only help, I offered. They refused to tell me anything, so I left. But the young woman who was leaving when I walked in the door was still in the hallway. She appeared to be in great distress, leaning on the wall, heaving and moaning. The man with her looked up when I came out. I could see the pain and anxiety written all over his face. His eyes were red. I briefly wondered if he'd be angry with me if I spoke to the woman. Is everything okay, I asked, taken aback. The woman nodded and attempted to smile at me, straightening up. She was very pregnant. I believe she was in her second trimester. I asked her what she was doing at the clinic, and she told me I'm here for an abortion. In confusion, I looked at her rounded stomach protruding firmly from her T-shirt. Did you already get it, I asked? No, she said, it's happening right now. Right now, I repeated, glancing back and forth between the couple as the mother leaned with one hand on the wall, clearly in pain. They took the tubes out, she responded breathlessly. She was writhing in pain. I immediately understood her to mean laminaria sticks, often made out of seaweed, which abortionists use to dilate a woman's cervix. Dr. Ingrid Scop, senior fellow and director of medical affairs at the pro-life Charlotte Lozier Institute, tells me the laminaria absorbs the water from the cervix and helps the cervix to dilate making it easier for the abortionist to reach into the uterus blindly with surgical instruments and remove the baby in a piecemeal fashion in a dilation and evacuation dismemberment abortion. But former abortionist Kathy Altman, now an associate scholar with the Charlotte Lozier Institute, told me it's likely the young woman I encountered would be heading into an induction abortion since she was in the hallway. If she were going to be having a D&E, the doctor would take the laminaria out at the beginning of the procedure while she was still in the syrups. In such an induction abortion, the doctor usually injects the baby with digoxin or potassium chloride when he puts the laminaria in and waits a day or two for the baby to die before inducing the abortion. But the baby doesn't always die, Altman told me. And if the doctor does not reach in and cut the umbilical cord before the baby is induced, that baby can be born alive. Since I have become all too too familiar with these types of procedures, says Mary Margaret Olihan, the thought that the young woman I saw was about to undergo these types of abortions flashed through my mind as I stood there in the hallway. I also thought of the recordings I had just carefully watched, purportedly showing Santangelo admitting he has had patients who still delivered their babies after the abortionist inserted the laminaria to dilate them. He said in one recording taken by an undercover live action activist, quote, they got some contractions. They panicked. They were in Virginia at the hospital. They went to the hospital because they had some pain. Instead of calling me at the hospital, they helped them to deliver, which was the stupidest thing they could have done. As I stood in the doorway, before I had an opportunity to speak to the young woman or even process what was going on, the abortion clinic worker stuck her head out the door. Don't talk to her, she yelled at the woman and man beside me. Come inside, come inside. She doesn't want you to talk to me because I'm a reporter, I told the couple. They didn't seem too concerned about this, but as the woman continued to order them inside, shouting over me, they began to go. I urged them to reach out to me through the daily wire if they wanted to talk. The woman nodded, the door closed behind them. I stood in the hallway a moment, bewildered by the brief interaction. Then I got in the elevator, went down to the lobby and out into the rain, overcome by the thought that the woman upstairs in so much pain and distress was aborting her unborn baby. Unfortunately, this is the sort of stuff that actually happens at these abortion clinics. And when you read the record on this particular abortionist, it is hideous. But the media won't report this sort of stuff because they are fully invested in the idea that abortion is a great human right. And so they continue to avoid the actual procedures that take place, the consequences of those procedures. And this is true on virtually every major issue. Pretty much every major issue. And it's particularly true, again, when it comes to social issues. Which means that members of the Democratic Party continue to take more and more extreme views on these social issues. Which brings us to Jen Psaki. So the White House has now announced that they are going to sick the DOJ on any state that bans the cutting off of healthy body parts from minors on behalf of the phantasmic notion that boys can become girls and girls can become boys. According to the White House, sex reassignment surgery, again, a euphemism, the cutting off of healthy penises and testicles from young boys and the formation of false testes and penises for young girls and the removal of their healthy breast tissue and the removal of their uterus and ovaries, that all of this is best practice, according to this White House. The reason that I spell out what happens in these procedures is because, again, euphemisms are the name of the game when it comes to the media, when it comes to the Democratic Party. So here's Gensaki Saki yesterday announcing that puberty blockers, hormone therapy, again, another euphemism, the injection of hormones that stop the puberty development of young girls and young boys and can have permanent side effects. And if used over long periods of time, can end in sterility, that this is, in fact, best practice for people who may or may not even be suffering from gender dysphoria. According to this White House, this is hideous stuff. Here is your very radical White House explaining. Every
1: major medical association agrees that gender-affirming health care for transgender kids is a best practice and potentially life-saving. All of this begs an important question. What are these policies actually trying to solve for? LGBTQI plus people can't be erased or forced back into any closets, and kids across our nation should be allowed to be who they are without the threat that their parents or their doctor could be imprisoned simply for helping them and loving them.
0: What an unbelievable euphemism gender-affirming healthcare is. It's is sex-denying surgery, sex-denying hormone replacement therapy. That's what it is. Gender-affirming healthcare. Gender is a made-up concept about what is going on in your mind. And so we have to chop off healthy body parts from teenagers based on bad science. Because let's be real about this. The science is not there. That there is long-term beneficial health effect to doing these things. Especially when, again, you don't have a firm diagnosis before a lot of this stuff is done of even gender dysphoria. In many cases, desistance would actually be the natural outcome of leaving people alone. And yet this White House says that the best course of practice is if a kid comes in at five years old and says, I feel like a little boy today and it's a little girl, you're supposed to immediately engage in, quote unquote, gender affirming health care, which means calling the little boy, uh, calling the little girl a little boy. And then transitioning this kid socially, indoctrinating them in the idea. They are, in fact, a member of the opposite sex and then providing them hormone therapy as they get older and then sterilizing them permanently and chopping off their genitals or adding false genitals to them and destroying secondary sex characteristics. This is what this White House is preaching. And this is because, again, the media engage in euphemistic practice all the time. According to Saki, she says, quote, Alabama's lawmakers and other legislators who are contemplating these discriminatory bills have been put on notice by the Department of Justice and the Department of Health and Human Services that laws and policies preventing care that health professionals recommend for transgender minors may violate the Constitution and federal law. The Constitution, yes, indeed, when they wrote the 14th Amendment in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, what they actually meant was you have a right to allow a minor to chop off their genitals. This is this is precisely what they mean. And again, all of this is pushed forward by media malpractice because the media will refuse. I mean, if you ask the media to actually show on screen what happens during these procedures, they never would. It would be far too graphic and far too brutal. They wouldn't do it because it would completely give the lie to everything they're doing. And so instead, they just provide false narratives. Another piece of The Daily Wire today by Dr. Miriam Grossman about the actual data surrounding this sort of hormone replacement therapy and surgery. And the answer is the data just aren't there. According to Dr. Grossman, quote, President Joe Biden has advised parents that early surgeries, hormone treatment and affirmations are crucial for the health of their gender confused children. According to the president, these are some of the most powerful things a parent can do as a child and adolescent psychiatrist who treats some of the families facing these issues. His statements are surprising and due to their medical and societal implications warrant thorough fact checking to clarify. Affirmation means unquestioning acceptance of a child's chosen gender identity, be it the opposite sex, a combination of male and female, neither male nor female, or one of the multitudes of other possibilities presented to children by the media online and at school. This means abandoning the use of a child's given name and the pronouns consistent with their biology and replacing them with the name and pronouns they've picked, permitting them the clothing and hairstyle of their choice, allowing girls to bind their breasts and boys to tuck their penises and testicles, facilitating the use of the opposite sex restrooms, participation in opposite sex sports teams, and so on. Hormone treatment refers to both puberty-blocking agents, PBAs, which halt the critical process by which kids mature into adults, and cross-sex hormones, which are given a few years after PBAs to chemically stimulate the puberty of the opposite sex. Surgeries refer to bilateral mastectomies, the removal of ovaries in the uterus, and the construction of a faux penis in girls, and breast implants, the removal of the penis and testes, and the construction of a faux vagina in boys. In the U.S., mastectomies are performed on girls as young as 13. Minor boys are being castrated. There is also a surgery that removes all genitalia marketed by surgeons to identi- to individuals who identify as neither male nor female or non-binary. Perhaps Joe Biden believes there's strong evidence these life-altering social and medical interventions lead to positive outcomes. If so, he could not be more mistaken. The severe lack of scientific knowledge of gender dysphoria is acknowledged by experts in the field. The American Psychological Association has stated, quote, because no approach to working with transgender and gender non-conforming children has been adequately empirically validated. Consensus does not exist regarding best practice with pre-pubertal children. In 2020, the UK's National Institute for Healthcare and Excellence did a systematic review of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and found evidence, medications, potential benefits are of very low certainty. Similarly, Dr. Stephen Levine, pioneer in the study, treatment of sexuality and gender problems since 1974, arguably the most highly credentialed and respected voice in the field, wrote in an expert affidavit, quote, the knowledge base concerning the causes and treatment of gender dysphoria has low scientific quality. Professor Carl Hennigan, editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal and director of the Center of Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford, along with Professor Tom Jefferson, a clinical epidemiologist, completed an independent analysis of research on transgender medical intervention. Concerning puberty blockers, Hennigan stated, quote, the quality of evidence in this area is terrible. And yet the president is calling for early treatment. He says it's one of the most powerful things a parent can do. And the media are trotting out all the heroes of the day who do this sort of thing, of course, including people like Jazz Jennings, Jazz Jennings is the poster child for the transgender industry, starting PBAs, puberty blockers at the age of 11, going on to estrogen in high school, before castration and the construction of a faux vagina at age 17. Jazz reported to surgeon Marcy Bowers, sexual sensations and orgasm were unknown experiences. Jazz is now 21, has gained 100 pounds, and is struggling severely with mental health issues. Bottom line is this. The simple fact of the matter is that once you're on puberty blockers, assistance becomes very rare. The health outcomes of this stuff are unknown. The evidence that this radically reduces suicidality does not exist. And because the media have been pressing forward with the notion that anyone who expresses any sort of gender confusion or gender nonconformity may in fact be a member of the opposite sex, the diagnosis of transgenderism has risen dramatically. As this doctor writes in the pages of the Daily Wire, until very recently, gender dysphoria was a rare diagnosis, prevalence of one in 30,000 or one in 110,000 and a male-female ratio of six to one. However, a 2021 study suggests the rate of transgender identification among urban youth may now be as high as nine in 100. So from one in 30,000 to nine in 100, which just to get the math right here, nine in 100 is the same as 90 in 1,000, which is the same as 900 in 10,000, okay? Which means that you're talking from one in 30,000 to 2,700 in 30,000 in the course of just a few years. Is all of that newly identified gender dysphoria? Or in fact, are we looking at a social contagion pressed forward by the left on the basis of crap gender theory and then pressed forward by a media that refuses to report the facts about this stuff? And yet this has now become a key part of the Democratic Party platform. It has become mainstream stuff in the media. The education secretary, of the United States said yesterday that biological males should be allowed to participate in women's sports if they believe they are female. Here was Miguel Cardona, the education secretary, yesterday.
1: Every student in our schools deserves an opportunity to engage in all aspects of schooling, including extracurricular, whether it's a club or athletics. Um, And I know there's been a lot of conversation about specific cases, but, uh, you know, across the country, it's really important that we give all students an
0: opportunity to engage and to participate in all that schools provide. It's all happy dappy do kind of stuff. The only thing you have to do is deny science, deny reality and completely obfuscate the issues. Meanwhile, in New Jersey, you know, the the entire media very upset that Florida has decided you're not allowed to indoctrinate kids in the bullcrap known as gender theory. You're not allowed to do this from K to three. And and the entire left says, how dare you do this? It's just terrible. It's just terrible. How could you do this? How could Florida do this? They're saying, don't say gay. How dare, how dare they do all of this? And it's not even relevant, say the left. And what, I mean, why would you even do this? We're not doing this at school. No, you are doing this at school. You are clearly doing this at school. According to the new 2022-2022 New Jersey State Sexual Education Guidelines, they now include gender identity instruction for elementary schoolers. One lesson plan, purple, pink, and blue, according to Fox News, instructs teachers to talk to first graders about gender identity. The first objective is to have the students be able to define gender, gender identity, and gender role stereotypes. And the lesson's second objective is to have student name at least two things they've been taught about gender role stereotypes and how those things may limit people of all genders. Gender identity is that feeling of knowing your gender. You might feel like you're a boy. You might feel like you're a girl, the lesson plan states. You might feel like you're a boy, even if you have body parts that some people might tell you are girl parts. You might feel like you're a girl, even if you have body parts that some people might tell you are boy parts. Some people might tell you a penis is a boy part, but it's not according to New Jersey public schools. I mean, this is sick and perverse kind of stuff. It really is. And it is promoted by the media and it is promoted by interest groups who continue to dominate the political spectrum. For example, The Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation put out a tweet, March 10th, 2022, quote, Corporations need to be held accountable for their silence on anti-LGBTQ bills in states where they do business. That's why we are updating our studio responsibility index to hold Hollywood accountable. In other words, unless major entertainment media continue to mirror the precept of the radical left, they will be targeted by interest groups and the media will help them in that targeting. Remember, it was places like Glad that were targeting Disney and the media Immediately went along with it, calling up, where do you guys stand at Disney? As a big employer in the state of Florida, where do you guys stand on the Florida, quote unquote, don't say gay bill? They bullied Disney into taking a ridiculous stance against parents and against kids. And Disney, because it's filled with cowards, promptly did that. There's new tape that's now emerging from that all hands meeting over at Disney, in which Bob Chapek, who leads Disney, just abjectly groveled in front of his employees,
1: I've read many emails that have been sent, spoken with LGBTQ employees and their allies, met with advocacy groups and convened my own leadership team. And I have been taken by the honesty, the openness and the urgency of their stories. I want you to know that your words have made a real impact on me. I understand that we've made mistakes and the pain that those mistakes have caused. And I know that our silence wasn't just about the bill in Florida, but about every time an individual or institution that should have stood up for this community did not. I and the leadership team are determined to use this moment as a catalyst for more meaningful and lasting change.
0: Pathetic malice struggle sessions dictated by the media, pushed forward by the media, pushed forward by interest groups in the media, which are basically a merger with the Democratic Party. It's pathetic. By the way, Disney, I mean, they are so far down the rabbit hole. Disney employee Latoya Ravenna, who you'll remember from suggesting that she was inserting a quote-unquote not-at-all-secret gay agenda into programming at the Walt Disney Company for children. She also explained that she wants to educate kids about all forms of sexual minorities, including quote-unquote biromantic asexuals like her. Now, if you can explain what a biromantic asexual is, congratulations to you. You have a degree in sociology from a crap state university. But apparently this is now a thing, a biromantic asexual. apparently she identifies as one biromantic, but not sexual, just emotionally romantic, but is a minority and thus put upon. And now you as a child need to know about it. Maybe you'll have your own flag. It's really exciting. Here's Latoya Raveno.
1: I identify as like a biromantic asexual. I've had a lot of learning and growing about myself this year, kind of facilitated by how comfortable I felt on, the proud family and with my immediate team at disney tva it feels like the things that we believe that we're trying to put into the shows are not what we're seeing in the real world and yeah it, it leaves you in a weird space you
0: no know, we're trying to we're trying to put it in the shows it's not the stuff we're seeing the, but it's the stuff we're trying to put in the show again th- this is all about a group of adults who are attempting to pervert the minds of children in order to make themselves feel better that's what this really is about this is why they are targeting children In the first place. And it's not just Disney, by the way. It's Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon spent the quote unquote International Trans Day of Visibility trying to indoctrinate kids because this is whom they're targeting. Trying to indoctrinate kids and the idea that little boys can be little girls and vice versa. They did so by featuring a little boy who believes he's a little girl. It's just this horrifying stuff from children's programming. And of course, the media love every element of it. In honor of
1: International Transgender Day of Visibility, meet Time and Nickelodeon's 2021 Kid of the Year finalist, Rebecca Brusahoff. Growing up in the LGBTQ community has given me a different perspective on how I see the world. Trans kids are so much more than their gender identity and it's so important for people to listen to kids. I wish for a world where everyone can be lifted up and celebrated. So today, and every day, we celebrate those who are helping others realize that everyone should be proud of what makes them who they are.
0: Okay, except if if what makes you who you are is your actual biological sex, then Nickelodeon is going to is going to reach out to your children and tell them they can be a member of the opposite sex. This is the media promulgating bad, false information, promulgating lies, euphemisms. This is what they do. And this is why people don't trust the media anymore, nor should they trust the media, because the media are hot garbage in this country. They've been hot garbage for a very long time. It's why the legacy media are falling away and why if you are subscribed to a legacy media outlet, you should really think about pulling your subscription today because they do a horrific job of actually presenting truth and an excellent job of presenting propaganda on behalf of their perceived political allies. Alrighty, we'll be back here later today with an additional hour of content. First, you can't forget to end your week by tuning into The Andrew Clavin Show. Bruce show is every Friday. He's got an exciting evening planned for you. Head on over to dailywire.com at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central and tune in. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Help spread the word about The Ben Shapiro Show by giving us a five-star review and sharing the show with a friend. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out some of our other Daily Wire shows. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Elliot Feld. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our production manager is Pavel Wydowski. Associate producer, Bradford Carrington. Editing is by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Koromina. Hair and makeup is by Fabiola Christina. Production assistant, Jessica Kranz. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Hey everybody, this is Andrew Clavin, host of the Andrew Claven Show. You know, some people are depressed because the Republic is collapsing, the end of days is approaching, and the moon's turned to blood. But on the Andrew Claven Show, that's where the fun just gets started. So come on over to the Andrew Claven Show and laugh your way through the fall of the Republic with me, Andrew Claven.